Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast confident that something eventually will turn up. My name is Corey Hazelhurst and my partner in propaganda is Steve Haynes. Hey Corey. In our last episode, we talked about what was wrong with the UK economy. How might we put it right? So we talked about a, a paper, didn't we, by Anna Stansbury and Dan Turner, who are academics based in America, and by Ed Balls, uh, who we do remember, it turns out, mostly from Strictly Come Dancing. Obviously, yeah, there's not done anything more important than that. Good Morning Britain, I suppose, as well. God, I forgot he'd done that. Yeah. I think he was on, like, a Great British Bake Off or something. Yeah, he's a, a decent chef, apparently, or a cook. I can't remember which one he prefers. He's written a book oh, about he's it. He's become a light entertainment personality, hasn't he? He has. Oh, but he was also a highly respected economist. That is true. Uh, as Michael Hazeltine would doubtless uh, agree, for those of you who listened to our last episode. So, so there are a few uh, problems that it talked about. So it talked about high levels of regional inequality. It talked about the fact that low, uh, cities like Manchester and Birmingham didn't quite have the productivity they should do, mostly because of lack of investment in public transport. Uh, talked about... Uh, Low productivity as well. And productivity is the, the, the big thing, isn't it? Transport and infrastructure, that's important, isn't it? Now, it's a good job then, Steve, isn't it, that the government has definitely not delayed one of the major pieces of transport infrastructure that, in fact, maybe the only main piece of transport infrastructure which is happening, which is HS2. Yeah, yeah, I mean, good Lord. Um Transport policy in this country has been a joke for quite some time, um, and if you compare and contrast to a lot of the other countries that are similar to Britain, like use Europe as an example, just because it's the, the nearest like for like, really. Although I think also if you were to compare America and Canada, not Australia, but they're in a very slightly different predicament overall due to the way that their country's laid out. Um, if you compare us to a lot of those places, guess what? They've got so many more miles of like high-speed tracks now. They're constantly in actually investing in their transport infrastructure, like railways and and uh, you know trams or, or or whatever, because they realise it's very very important. Whilst in this country, we have one project, high-speed two which people are still trying to get cancelled to this day, even though the damn thing's already been built. Um, it's basically been split into what was originally like quite quick, multiple legs happening at once, has become, well, we're going to go from Houston to Birmingham. We might move beyond Birmingham, maybe. We're definitely not going to connect it up to uh, anything in the northwest. Uh, and uh, by the way, we may not even take it all the way to Houston, except we are going to take it all to Houston because we've already built it, but that doesn't stop the government. Some people are uh, briefing against it, even though the, the Prime Minister then comes out the next day and says, actually, no, that is happening. We have a transport policy that is governed 
by the Shires and governed by a very specific type of Nimde who does not want to have a, a train in their backyard. Like if you look over there at the puppet, it'll, it'll ruin the scenery. And that seems to be what is driving an awful lot of opposition to uh, uh, to HS2 uh, at its at its core. They'll, they'll come on and, on and talk about oh rising costs and everything, but well yeah, of course there's rising costs because we should have been about three quarters of the way through the damn thing by now. We've barely started because you guys keep on forcing us to do reviews, keep on uh, trying to take it to court. All of these different things add up over time and. And, they, and they're trying to hold, hold it as, a, oh, this is just a classic example of why we shouldn't build things. It's like, no, this is why we should. Because if we don't build these things, we don't get nice things. Well, yes, and again, we talked about this on a end-of-year podcast with uh, Bridget and John and, and LJ a couple of years ago, which is that the main case for HS2, certainly in, from a Birmingham Central point of view, is about capacity. So one of the things that the paper talks about is how few people can travel to the city centre in 30 minutes um, <clears throat> from wherever they are in the city and I suppose part of the, the part of the problem you have is that if you well, once you have HS2 you will be able to free up routes on other tracks for more uh, branch line trains yeah. more commuter trains more local trains until HS2 is built everyone just has to go down the same track. As anyone who's ever been in a train and heard the announcement that you're stuck behind a slow-moving local train will know, that can sometimes be a frustrating experience. Mm -hmm. Delaying HS2 won't mean that costs are lower, it will mean that costs increase. Um, And again, you're just in this, the British economy is just in this really quite terrible position where uh, living standards are, are falling, for an unprecedented level. You've got high inflation, you've got high debt, you've got a cost of living crisis. You've got a a coalition government that cut investment in the 2010s when interest rates were really, really low and it was possible to actually borrow to invest. But now interest rates are high (laughs) and you can't do that. There's just this sort of sense of 12 or 13 wasted years really. The more I learn about transport policy, uh, housing policy, infrastructure policy, and all of these things, the more and more frustrating it is when you look back at the the policy agendas of the the last, I don't know, few governments. You could probably make a case going back to to, to Brown as well, uh, Brown and Blair, um, that they didn't necessarily putting a focus onto those areas either for, for long-term uh, projects and thinking they did better than Cameron, they did better than the Tories, the Coalition and, and, and all of that. But that's like getting over a very low bar um, given uh, given where we are. So it really doesn't, just doesn't feel like we've tried to actually have a serious attempt at resolving this, this issue at all. Or if we have, it's been it's been spun. It's, it's like whenever you hear transport policy, it's almost always in the discussion of climate change and the environment, and that is accurate and correct, and you know a really important reason why we should be getting more people into public transport and things like that. 
But we've let the debate about transport be dominated by that, so it becomes one of that, a set of green crap, quote unquote, um, as uh, David Cameron, I think, once put it, um, rather than it being a core fundamental driver of. Siri did that. <laughs> I didn't even need to do that. Um, and as a result, we've just lost footing, we've lost momentum with it, and we were just not actually putting ourselves forward in any meaningful way. And I never thought I'd become a man who'd be passionate about bus timetables, but God damn it, I have become passionate about bus timetabling. Uh, and it is just mental that we are where we are in the 21st century with most of the major cities of this country unable to actually effectively run public transport in a way that is properly beneficial for their own inhabitants. But again, I suppose you have, this is a legacy of many different governments. So the country was led throughout the entirety of the 1980s by a woman who said that if a man over 35 was on a bus, then he was a failure. And uh, again, the late historian Tony Judd has written really well on this. He wrote about trains, but I think it's equally true of buses that um, buses and trains and public transport about that sort of collective transport it's something that certainly um, the, the the Tory party and what I'm going to call neoliberalism, despite the fact that people don't like the term, um, I, I suppose cars are sort of seen as more individualistic in that yeah. sense, right, and, right. and not wanting to to support public transport in that way, well, that right kind of collective the, endeavour. They, they dislike it right up until a tech pro tries to reinvent it, um, <laughs> and just goes, "What if we had Uber?" But it was like for multiple people, and it would go to set stops on a journey consistently every day at a set time, it's there and back, and you just like, you just waited for it. This is like, congratulations, Tech Pro, you've invented the public bus system. It would never happen, Steve. Well, and no, it doesn't happen, that's the problem. <laughs> well, no, and it, yeah, it, it, it's, yeah, it, it, it's, it's, it's those salami slicing of cuts, and it's, it's, it's one of those things where COVID has. Part of the impact, I think, of COVID on public transport is just completely gutted yeah. it as well. I think you were right to talk about uh, the sort of NIMBY aspect as well. Usually it's with planning, isn't it? Yeah. I feel it's it's usually um, it's usually a Tory MP who uh, is I, not not always though actually, yeah. um, but who uh, talks about the need to build more houses, but then will always find some excuse to oppose some sort of development in their constituency. And wasn't it Leila Moran, I think, who was... Yeah, Lib Dems are classics for this. Yeah. Um, Sorry, Mark. And hello, by the way. I mean, you will, you go into any Lib Dem discussion group or, or follow uh, a significant number of, uh, uh, of Lib Dems online and you will find the exact same sentiments being expressed. Um, there is a definite NIMBY element within the Liberal Democrats uh, and uh, there are a lot of Lib Dems who are very frustrated with it as well. But I think, but I, again, that's partly, it's, I think that it's partly because the Lib Dems are very effective local campaigners. Yeah. And, um, and this is true of the Greens as well, who are, uh, essentially have taken the Lib Dem playbook of hyper-local targeting, effective organised, consistent, repeated messaging and lots of activity uh, and, and sort of made that 
their playbook as well. It means they can win wards all over the country, like we've talked about that on previous podcasts. And so actually you do then have green, I mean, the Greens oppose HS2 for reasons. The uh, You've got green candidates who win on the back of opposing solar farms in by-elections. Lib Dems won by-elections. Uh, I think it was the Cheshire Mammoth one, wasn't it? Which was then seen as a, that was seen as reaction against, that they were campaigning against the restrictions of the, changes to house building that the, the government was trying to, to bring in. Which were designed to allow more houses being built. Maybe not in an effective way, but that was the core notion about it. And the opposition to it was based around, we don't want more people living in our area. Well, yeah, and uh, and so one of the things that there was nothing in Jeremy Hunt's budget, which was probably about a month ago by the time this episode comes out, but there was nothing in there about social care. Mm-hmm. So uh, to, to move on a slightly a little bit, so... Uh, one of the things we talked about in the last episode is the fact you've got eight or nine million economically inactive persons in Britain. Some of that is because of of, of sickness. Um, so I think there's about 500,000 people in, in the UK at the moment suffering from non-COVID. Uh, and again, we've sort of talked about the impact of COVID and how that's hit different uh, sort of class and ethnic groups differently. Yeah. Um, and one of the reasons why, so one of the reasons, one of the ways the government has tried to increase productivity by getting people back in the labour market. So it talked about childcare and trying to get uh, young, young parents back into the market, but also changing pensions. So uh, essentially, they've changed the pension pot to make it easier for consultants to stay working in the NHS while benefiting all rich people who are about to retire, whereas we're going to have to work till we're seventy. Yeah, and and this is the thing. A lot of the the productivity like driving agenda is it's fiddling around the edges in so many ways it's trying to rearrange the deck chairs on the titanic in 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 many ways and that it's not actually gonna do anything massively to help um so i mean child care is actually probably one of the ones that would 100 percent if you can get it right make a massive difference because childcare is so expensive. If you could make childcare a lot more affordable in some form or free, you know what? You probably would find an awful lot of people would go back to work um, in, in some capacity. Now, that's going to take a lot of money and that's not what's actually being suggested uh, in any meaningful way, at least by the government. Um, so that's not actually a, a thing that's going to happen. So we end up with things like, oh well, if we inc- decrease, sorry, increase the pension age or make it slightly more appealing for people not to retire or or whatever, you end up with this minimal effort on the part of the government, minimal impact uh, in, in terms of what what it what it's meant to be achieving and minimal change actually happening in any form. Because ultimately, the way that you boost productivity is going to be, it's going to go back to those, if we bring this back specifically to the, uh, uh, to, to the, to the, to the report we're going to be talking about, you know, the, the three kind of like main ways that you have of like boosting productivity in, in one way or other, you've got your education and infrastructure and financial access investments you've got your endogenous growth theory of r&d spend and coordinating economic activity and then you've got internal boosting internal migration between regions of the right sort of people that's it 
really. Maybe there are a few other things, but ultimately you need to be doing so, all of these really to make a massive dent in the productivity issue. This is the sort of thing which, like, look from my perspective, if you were like, if you were a, a prospective Labour government, you'd be going, this is our mission, because if we get this right, this has massive impacts across the entirety of society. Um, and you can do some really cool, big, progressive things as part of it, like, say, free childcare or whatever. Um, but the, the core notion behind it all is economically focused and economically centric in boost the, Britain's, the British economy's productivity and end this, this problem that we have. But no government is currently put forward anything that I would say is actually a meaningful solution to this. So it's interesting that the pension age isn't going to increase yet, is it? It's just that anyone, I think, probably born after 1979 will have to work till they're 70, which, given that life expectancy hasn't really risen in Britain... It's come down. Yeah, for over over a decade. Um, And I think it's also about the sort of country you want to be, isn't it? Mm -hmm. So, interesting, there's, there's a few protests in... Paris uh, and France f- for a change uh, at the moment and uh, it's interesting Lewis Goodall another obscure Birmingham reference um, from, from the news agents went over there and one of the things that was interesting in that is lots of, lots of people saying to him essentially that they didn't want to be you know, Anglo-Saxon capitalist you know sort of English um, UK American you know work all the hours you do um, and actually, let, let's face it, the, the, the working week is probably longer in Britain than it is in France, but actually it's less productive, and that's yep. part of the problem, is is that. Um, <clears throat> and, and as you said, a lot of the childcare stuff, well, a, 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 lot of the ch- a lot of the changes to childcare and changes to pensions, a lot of it is, is tinkering around the edges, really, that you could do with a wholesale reform of the pension sector, is yep. what the IFS say, not just... Uh, you could do. You could even have tried to do a sector-specific thing for NHS staff, rather than something which just benefits a load of rich people with big pension pots. Yeah. Um, and in terms of yeah, as you say, talking about R and D investment, that kind of stuff. So one of the things that was in the budget are investment zones, which I feel seem to come up. It's the it's the bank bonus tax of this government. Um, the, the sort of policy they they wheel out. So there's. There's 12 investment zones all across the country, none of them in London in the southeast. So I suppose that's something, isn't it? Um, uh, but honestly, I don't think it's going to make a lot of difference. So there's a, there's 80 million pounds of funding for skills and investment. Mm-hmm. Fine. But to put that into context, that's 80 million pounds nationally from the government, these 12 zones to boost skills and investment. Um, 800 million pounds has been taken from Birmingham City Council's budget since 2010. So again, 80 million sounds like a lot, but it's a drop in the ocean. Yeah. Like there was five million pounds, I think, uh, awarded to, to parks in nationwide. And it's well, You've probably lost that just in the parks budget. But pro- probably own, lost yeah. more than that yeah. in the parks budget. So, and and again, and I, I, I'm sure we talked about this. The last time we talked about a Tory budget, apart from the mini budget, because uh, actually investment zones were probably more, one of the more left-wing ideas yeah. in that budget by comparison. But investment zones tend just to shift investment around. So you're talking about actually trying to put some serious government money into research, into planning, into development, into training. This isn't that. This is 
just shifting whatever economic activity might be around to wherever the investment zone is. Yeah, it says so much about the, uh, the current government's approach to, uh, to productivity where I think there's a strong case that George Osborne in the middle of austerity was doing a better job of this because Osborne at least was able to put in place some, some policies where, for instance, if you're a manufacturer and you brought in certain types of systems or certain types of machinery or whatever, they were made tax deductible. So you could basically claim a load of it back um, to cover the costs so that you're then more efficient in terms of what you're doing. Still fiddling around the edges, but it's at least a, something that actually has a practical outcome at the end of it. Uh- I don't want this podcast to get into the grotesque chaos of praising George Osborne's <laughs> economic policy. Don't worry, it doesn't happen very often. Um, but, like, you know, stop clock, write twice a day, etc., etc. Um, but even Osborne was able to put some things in place like this. Now, who knows? Maybe it was more a Danny Alexander thing. That wouldn't surprise me. Wow. Um, I've forgotten all about Danny. Um, I think he's in Hong Kong now. Is he? I'm sure, I'm sure he moved somewhere. Speaking of low tax investment zones. <laughs> indeed, indeed, indeed. Um, but, uh, but yeah, there's... Uh, like, like What we are doing currently, even compared to previous Conservative administrations, is, is farcical. It's absolutely daft. But I wonder how much of it is because you've got a lot of Tory politicians now who don't work in the proper economy. So, I mean... Rishi Sunak was a hedge fund trader. I, I think Jeremy Hunt, I think, was in something similar, wasn't he? So, then the, Hunt did found his own business and things like that. Oh, actually, it's no. Not necessarily, that's going to be the same. Okay, thing. You, I think that was an IT one as well. Yes, no, you're, you're at, no, I stand corrected, but um, I'm still going to make my point stand oh. like any good pub boys. Sunak, as a hedge fund trader, I suppose, is someone who's never had to think about business in that way. You see it with someone like Donald Trump as well, yeah. who you know would. Um, try and tout his business credentials but essentially he's he's not really a businessman in in that in that sense really no so it's not really it's just divorced from any any way that the actual economy usually works yeah 100 um i think there's there's a lot to be said there and i I do find it really interesting and and this is perhaps an interesting dynamic because when you look at it an awful lot of the uh, I guess they would have all been kind of like Cameron's A-list back in the day. You know, oh, you're, you're yes. Sunex, you're, 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 Sa- you're, you're, you're the Sag. The Sag. Um, those sorts of, like, pretty much all of the yeah, uh, people who came through that A-list who are, you know, ethnic minorities. Um, I think... I think Caroline Noakes was probably there as well. Yeah, there's a number of, the, a n- n- number of women as, as, as well come, come through it. Probably. A lot of them have that background. A lot of them have that background, I think. Which and given those then became because of the no, the nature of that list, and it was just like these people were really good. Um, we need to get them into mm. vulnerable seats. They've then gone on to become ministers, cabinet members, and again, it's just a really interesting dynamic where you can go that a list maybe even cause some of like the problems you've got at the top of the the Conservative Party right now, and that it's. Maybe it just cherry picked a little bit too much from a certain type of uh, business type person. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, obviously, can't talk about selections yet. Have to wait another couple of weeks. <laughs> Not working with a party. Um, shall we talk about investment in R and D though? So yeah. uh, it turns out. Uh, so uh, again, really interesting Ros Atkins panorama documentary on this, and uh, 
um, in that he quotes Rishi Sunak at a press conference in Indonesia saying that the problem is that businesses aren't investing in R&D and it turns out Steve that often businesses don't do a lot of investment if there's a lot of political uncertainty in a country is there any political certainty that's happened in the UK over the past seven years any political certainty yes no definitely not no. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the, you've also, so that is a, a very true statement uh, in that um, businesses don't want to commit money to anything unless they are sure that it's actually going to be beneficial in some form. I say this to somebody who works in marketing who has tried to sell marketing services. And the thing with a lot of marketing is you can't guarantee that it will do X, Y, Z. It's just not possible, which makes it very hard to sell at times. Mm. So believe me when I Bit say... Bit of an add-on, you yeah, might say. indeed. Um, so believe me when I say that uh, businesses are very cautious with their own money, and quite rightly so. Most businesses are very aware that if they make some poor, 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 poor decisions, it's not just money out of their pocket, it's money out of the pockets of their employees. Um, because ultimately, if things go belly up, then they're their employees are out of work. So they, quite rightfully in a lot of ways, are very cautious. And the thing is, you can do things to encourage them. You know, uh, stable political conditions, to, uh, sort of, you know, certainty around major decisions around, like, what our relationship with Europe is going to be. You mean not, leave, sort of not leaving your biggest market? Indeed. Not doing a mini-budget that just leads you to cut loads of taxes but not have any clear point of where the extra money might be funded. Indeed. All of those sorts of things uh, can be viewed quite negatively by businesses overall. And that is is backed up by the CBI who, for instance, were against leaving the EU um, as a rule. Is that because they were woke Remainers, Steve? Obviously, yes. I suppose it's three Prime Ministers in a year also maybe political uncertainty that yep. probably doesn't look great does it no it probably doesn't no. um, but even then even if you have political certainty you still need to do take actions to encourage people to invest in these things and as I said like Osborne making certain things tax deductible making so that there are benefits to doing it in some form so that over the medium to long term you can say okay if we give you 10 grand off your tax bill actually that 10 grand will turn into 100 grand's worth of investment uh, of uh, you know into the treasury over five years so you know all of that sort of stuff is the sort of thing you need to be looking to do um, so that you can actually encourage people to do to do uh, to, to invest in proper productivity the issue is an awful lot of the productivity gains that are needed are not actually shiny new technology or AI, or any of this other stuff that, that people like to talk about. It's bog standard skills and training. It's just about helping businesses um, either afford or encouraging them to invest in their employees so that they can do a better job in their role. That's all it is. Like, literally all it is. And that sort of strikes at the heart of, again, the government talk about a flexible labour market, but in that sense you almost don't, want I suppose a flexible labour market <laughs> just want, um, I, but, so um, what, the, what the government is doing is it, so it set up a new department for science innovation or technology uh, and they have a million pound prize for uh, 
the, 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 the project that can make the most progress in AI, which is very exciting, isn't it? So AI, massive potential as a productivity tool, don't get me wrong. But this is another example of tech bro Rishi Sunak, because he basically is that. Um, He's the, the clown in the morgue, Steve, yeah. I think that's right. Um, kind of going, here's a cool thing we can we can talk about. Here's a nice like idea that, that shows we're on the cutting edge of of technology and the economy. Like AI is fantastic. I've, I've over the past couple of months I've started utilizing ChatGPT for, for work purposes. Um, and it looks really and it actually has been very, very helpful um, in, in a lot of ways. Um, like in particular Microsoft's AI, which seems to be specifically designed to interact with the Microsoft Office suite. So where you have a the idea like the, the core example that they give of how it functions is you have a call with let's say I have a call with you on Teams, um, the AI automatically writes up and transcribes it for us. I can then tell it to oh I need to give a presentation to my boss about the conversation we've had. It then takes that information and structures it in some in a basic way for you in PowerPoint. You know, it does right. it in a really cool. That's the idea behind it's it. It's like a place. sexed up paperclip, basically. Yes, pretty much. It? It's clippy if clippy were useful. Um, yeah. but that's, bold claim. But that it's a cool little thing, but it's very niche. It's an, a, a specific software environment that it's been designed to work in. That is AI that's actually useful. ChatGPT, uh, as, as cool as it is in a lot of ways, it does too much. That you can't actually that you almost end up kind of looking at it going, what the hell am I meant to, to do with this? Uh, AI isn't a ground ground groundbreaking thing which is going to revolutionise the economy. AI is a to-do list that's not intelligent. Oh, I suppose is it that it's it's going to revolutionise society? That like we could have said something very similar about the Gutenberg press in 1470. Potentially, but then the revolution but then if it's revolutionising society in the way that people want to kind of imply that it, that it could do, and it, and it absolutely could, and I don't, it's nowhere near it yet, but it, it, in the way that it could do, um, then surely it's solving that productivity issue or it would, already, when I don't think it is. Or it's also, I think, about, and there's one article in the conversation about this, and it mentions the, the, the Science Fund, is that actually what you need to do is think about the ramifications of AI and maybe think about regulating some of the tech we already have. I mean, Patrick Vance has done a report on that, which the government has said, oh yes, that'd be, oh, yes, that'd be very nice, but we're not actually going to do anything on it yet. Um, and also, that, that so the AI is the technology bit, there may be a bit of the innovation bit, but there's not a lot on the science-y bit. Yeah. And again, Investing in STEM and boosting STEM graduate jobs is something that was highlighted in the paper that hasn't really happened much. Not at all. No. Right, we've ended on a note of agreement. That's a rare thing. That is, isn't but, it? But considering we actually agree on a lot, it's very rare we agree on this podcast. Oh, I don't know about that, actually. I would disagree. Um, <laughs> so... Uh, we're now going to talk a little bit about the politics of the budget and I might even try and get Steve to talk about electoral reform so 
another cliffhanger, listeners. And again, if you think, I'm not sure I can wait a week for Corey to relentlessly troll Steve to try and talk about the ending of the first past the post system. I need to hear that right away. I need to taste that discomfort. What would you need to do, Steve, to, to hear that early? I'm not told chat, I'm not against electoral reform. No, you just don't want me to talk about it. We did an entire podcast on it before, Corey, remember? Um, yeah, you can head over to patreon.com slash not enough champagne, uh, where, as uh, Corey alluded to, we're going to be putting up the next episode uh, a little bit early. Uh, for you to uh, have a listen to. So yeah, a couple of quid every month. Uh, all, all proceeds go to helping us cover the cost of the podcast. Our website's not enough champagne. No, it's not. It's still not. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash not enough champagne. Our Twitter handle's at no champagne pod. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. And Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Plucky Good Times. I'm at Paperback Rioter. I'm at Acoustic Randall. Happy plotting. <laughs> <laughs>